0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Corinthians, First Corinthians, in chapter ten, and find verse thirty-one. I perhaps realized this morning that four verses was far too many, so we'll just we'll just try one this evening. First Corinthians ten thirty-one. With God's word open before us, let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you humbly this evening, humbly and reverently and full of eager anticipation that we would see your glory. Open our eyes, God, that we might see the glory of your fullness as it shines forth in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be changed by it, motivated by it, and that we might grow in perpetual awe of it to the renown of your son's name from this place to the ends of the earth we pray in Jesus name amen 1st Corinthians 10:31 this is the word of god please take heed how you hear it so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and breathed-out word. Well, in keeping with our Reformation Sunday theme, this evening we're looking at the principle of soli Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Uh, Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, has been telling them uh, how they ought to respond to any and all situations in life through the lens of the gospel, this, this whole book, which obviously is much more than we can try to capture in, in a, a short bit of time, uh, is aimed at teaching the Christian Church how they should view themselves in light of the gospel reality that has come to bear in their lives. How do they interact with the world? How do they interact with one another? How do they live in life out of a recognition of the gospel's truth and the gospel in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, is the announcement that Jesus opens up a new reality for us. It's a reality in which we view and engage with all aspects of life in light of his redemptive work on the cross. Let me say that again. The reality which the gospel makes true, that it opens up for us as Christians Is that we are able to view and engage with every aspect of life in light of Christ's redemptive work on the cross? How do we live in the church with people who think differently and are different from us? How do we work in the world, a world which holds an opposing value system to the values of Scripture? How do we relate to one another in the home as husbands and wives and parents and children and in-laws and so forth, whether it be with unbelieving family members or with believing family members who we may disagree with on certain things? How do we think about topics such as sex and marriage and so forth in light of Jesus and his reconciling work on the cross? No, we must keep those things together. It's not how do we think about sex and money and relationships and marriage and so forth, but it's how do we think about them in light of the gospel, the reality that Christ has come to bear on our lives, which changes the way we view and interact with everything. This may seem minor, but Paul has spent this last chapter, and even chapters prior to this, asking questions about how we think about food and drink in light of our liberty in Christ. How does the gospel influence or inform the way we think about eating and drinking? Do we just partake in whatever we want because we can? All things are permissible, but not all things are profitable, and the gospel helps us to discern those things as Christians. Paul says in chapter 8 verse 13, I will never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. Let me just pause for a moment, a quick aside for those of you here who love your Christian liberty as much as I do. Paul, who writes more about Christian liberty than any other author in the New Testament, says very plainly, if it causes another Christian to stumble, I'll never even eat meat again. Now, Paul was not from North Carolina. But I presume that he's including barbecue in that statement. Brisket, pulled pork, rotisserie chicken ribeyes tomahawk steaks whatever we're gonna have for dinner tonight it's all under that umbrella and paul says none of these things mean anything to me more than the faithful obedience of my brother and sister in christ and if i do something that causes them to stumble how dare i in my christian liberty that's no christian liberty at all and the gospel makes that true for paul He interprets eating and drinking in light of the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done. How do we think about death? Paul says the gospel impacts the way we think about death, the very end of life. Is it simply the end of things as we know it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die? Or do we think about death as the beginning of life because it's a beginning that our Savior opened to us in His own death and resurrection? In other words, Corinthians is about honoring Christ in your body and your soul, whether by life or by death. We can kind of couple a few verses together here. Paul says in in Philippians, obviously, uh, as we've been listening to the evening sermons from Neil, uh, that whether by life or by death, only that I honor Christ Jesus, Paul says, when he's in prison. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, in verses 19 and 20, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. He's speaking of the, the blood of Jesus, the gospel that speaks of the blood of Jesus purchasing us to himself. Therefore, or so, glorify God in your body. You're not your own. And the gospel means that we live lives in light of the reality that we've been purchased at a great cost. The grace is free for us. It costs Jesus his life. All this ought to inform the way that we live, the way that we interact with one another, uh, and the way that we think about the world and things around us. The capstone of all this teaching, therefore, is found in chapter 10, verse 31, as we've read earlier, whatever you do, even something as mundane and ordinary as eating or drinking, do it to the glory of God. Because you've been bought with a price because God has saved you from your sins in Christ Jesus and freed you to eat and drink whatever you want. Therefore, do it for his glory because he deserves all the glory that we can give him. Think about what he's done for us. Now, let me say at the outset that we need the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. Please don't hear me say that all you need to do is try harder to glorify God. Just try harder. Grab your bootstraps, pick yourself up, try harder to glorify God. Are you struggling with sin? Try harder. I am not interested in telling you that because you can't do that and I can't do that. Rather, we rely on the power, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, the Father, and the Son from whom the Holy Spirit proceeds, enabling us to walk in his commandments, to love his law and delight in it, to to cause it to not be burdensome to us, as John says in 1 John chapter 5. We can do none of these things apart from Christ. John chapter 15, Jesus tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. In Isaiah 64, we read that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In other words, even the good that we do, when we do those things for reasons other than the glory of God, they're worthless. There is no pagan that pleases God. No philanthropist, no kind deed done for an elderly neighbor no keeping of the moral law by those who don't know God, none of these things earn favor with God. They don't bring glory to God. They are filthy rags insofar as they are done for motives other than glorifying God. And so we need the Spirit of God to enable us to live this way. We live this way out of the reality of our adoption as God's children, don't we? Recognizing that it's not a matter of trying to earn favor with that that homeowner who might choose to bring us into his life and choose to bring us into his home if we can live in such a way present ourselves in the orphanage with such uh, beauty and splendor and good behavior that he'll he'll choose to adopt us rather he's already brought us to his table he's already paid the price and given us our adoption papers He's already said, You're mine, and I'm your father. You have my last name now, and my son and all of his inheritance is now shared with you. We're already in the family. And so we live this way out of an awareness, out of gratitude for who God is as our Heavenly Father and what it means to be His children. So please don't hear me say to try harder. But I want to encourage us to consider what it means to pursue God's glory with all the power of the inner working of the Holy Spirit so that we might cause others to glorify our Father in heaven as they see us live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. So my question to you this evening is this, what is the motivating drive in your life? What is the motivating drive in your life? Think of all those categories from Corinthians, the relationships we have in the church, vocation and work, eating and drinking, sex and marriage, parenting and so forth, all of these relationship things, thinking about life, thinking about death, thinking about um, the sins that we used to commit and who we are now. What is your motivating drive as it relates to all of those things? Is it self-fulfillment? I really just want to feel good about myself as a person, as a man or a woman. If my home is in order, I feel fulfilled. So my motivating drive is to have a home that's always clean and neat and everything is put where it belongs because I feel like I'm in control. Is it to have a certain size retirement account and have a date marked on the calendar, I'm done working on this day so I can relax and I'll be fulfilled if I have a certain amount of money waiting for me when I get there. Is that what motivates you in life? Is it peace? Is it the peace of a home where no one questions your authority or asks you if you're sure that's the best choice? Is it the sort of peace that demands your children spend most of their time in their room or outside so you don't have to be bothered engaging with them and answering questions that you find silly or foolish? Is it the sort of peace that says... Everybody has to walk on eggshells when they're around me lest I be set over the edge because I want things to be done a certain way. And when it's interfered with, there's going to be trouble. Does your own personal peace motivate you? What about respect in the workplace or in your home? What about happiness? Is your chief motivational drive your own happiness? I'm terrified of being sad, I don't want the sad and depressive emotions to ever rise up in my heart or my mind. And so I pursue entertainment and happiness and fun and recreation to such a degree that it's become my motivational purpose in life in order to avoid difficulty, avoid thinking about hard things, avoid introspection and asking myself tough questions about my sin. Is it my reputation? What is your motivational drive in life? These and many other things motivate countless millions of people. Nobody has any tomatoes with them right now, do they? Okay, so Tom Brady, who is arguably the greatest quarterback who's ever lived, after winning seven Super Bowls, individually more than any other team has ever won, said that what motivates him at this stage of life is proving to himself that he can still do it. In other words, proving the naysayers wrong. His motivational drive is all about self. What motivates you? What drives you in every aspect of your life? Something does. I think you know that the motivating drive in your life should be God's glory. That's what Paul tells us here in this text. Whether we're eating or drinking, whatever we're doing, everything that we're doing, and by implication, whatever you choose not to do, should be done or not done to the glory of God. And I want us to see why in three ways this evening. First of all, we need to ask the question, what is God's glory? Secondly, why is it necessary for Christians to pursue God's glory? And then third, and most practically, how do we glorify God in all of life? We'll spend some time at the end asking a couple questions about how we can glorify God in all of life. So firstly, what is God's glory? It's a a term we throw around soli deo gloria, all things to the glory of God. What does that even mean? Well, there's two primary words that we're working with as we try to create a definition for God's glory. First of all, there's the Hebrew word kavod. Uh, It's the word most often used in the Old Testament to describe the glory of God as the glory comes down and fills the temple and so forth. Uh, The the, the idea behind kavod is weightiness or splendor. This is kind of a large uh, domain of of definitions here I want to provide for you. There's the weight of God, the splendor, the beauty of God in His, in His uh, uh, unapproachable light, His dignity, the preciousness with which we view God. It's a term, in other words, God's glory, kavod. It's a word that encapsulates all of God's attributes at once. Glory is essential to His godness insofar as it reflects the totality of his being in all of its weight and majesty. God's mercy and holiness and love and justice and kindness and patience and long-suffering and covenant-keeping and wrath and so forth are all subsumed under the idea of his glory. It's what gives him God-weight. The Greek term The New Testament term that's most often used is doxa. It's the word that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses most commonly to translate kavod into Greek. A little bit differently, uh, doxa most plainly means praiseworthiness. Praiseworthiness. It actually comes from a term that has to do with holding something in high opinion or high regard. So it's, it's the thing about God that makes him worth you praising him, worth you thinking about him in a praiseworthy manner. All put together then, God's glory is a high and dignified opinion about God due to his inherent weight and majesty. It is a high and dignified thought about God, opinion of God, due to his inherent weight and majesty. Now make no mistake, God's glory is altogether an other kind of glory, and so we don't have really good parallels here on earth that can register with us when we think about God's glory. It's not like the glory of an athlete at the top of their game, even Tom Brady. It's nothing, nothing compared to the glory of God. It's not even like the glory of a sunrise on a clear morning at the beach. Not a cloud in the sky, the ocean is as calm as blown glass. And the sun is cresting over the horizon, and you see that flash of light as it hits both the sea and the sky at the same time. And the light skims across the top of the ocean right into your face, and you immediately feel the warmth of the sun coming over the horizon. And you see the hues of orange and yellow and and red and the blue of the sky changing from gray as it races away from the glory of the sun. Even that is nothing in comparison to the glory of God. We have no real parallel. It is other. We try to capture the idea with words like weight or praiseworthiness, but it's far more than that. Let's look at a couple passages of Scripture. Turn to Exodus chapter 22, or excuse me, 33, uh, with me. Exodus 33. Uh, You know the story. Uh, The Israelites have been reveling with their cow, and Moses uh, rescues them through his intercession, And he says to the Lord, uh, I would like to see your glory. In chapter 33, verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, uh, after having asked him to go with them, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I'm in verse 17. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to on whom I will show mercy. That's what Sonny read earlier from Romans 9. But he said, You cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God's glory is so much, so weighty that if Moses were to even glance at the front of it, he would have disintegrated, died. God had to cover him up and protect him from his own glory. God's glory is such that no man can see it and live in Isaiah chapter 6. We read this familiar passage starting in verse 1 that Isaiah is in uh, the temple in the year that King Uzziah died. And he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple... Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is such that even the whole world can't contain it. Imagine for a moment staring at the sun with a pair of binoculars. You're, you're already blinking, aren't you? Thinking about that big green spot that follows you everywhere you look for the rest of the day as you try to avoid it and look around it to see the faces or the TV. Staring at the sun for five minutes through a pair of binoculars. You'd go blind. You'd be permanently damaged. Your eyes would be permanently damaged. Now, Beetlejuice, not the Kevin Costner, or Kevin, uh, what's his name? Michael Keaton, not Michael Keaton, the the star. Is six, excuse me, seven hundred and sixty four times larger than our sun. It is one hundred and twenty six thousand times more luminous than our sun. Even more amazing than that is that only thirteen percent of Betelgeuse's radiant energy is emitted as visible light. Thirteen percent. In other words, if if our eyes could see all of the radiant energy that Betelgeuse emits as light, it would be even eight times more brilliant in luminosity than it is. And that, now that's brilliance. And God spoke it into existence. God spoke that star into existence. And it cost him no energy at all. The psalmist in Psalm 8 says, When I look at the the heavens, the moon, and the stars, the works of your fingers. God didn't even need to use his bicep to make Betelgeuse, just his fingers. He holds all of it and the billions and billions of galaxies and trillions and trillions of stars in the palm of his hand. That's weightiness, that's glory. That's praiseworthiness. The heavens declare the glory of God. Betelgeuse screams with 126,000 times the luminosity of our sun, there is a God above the heavens who made everything by the word of his power. And Betelgeuse is as black as the darkest night in the deepest cave on earth compared to the radiance of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's the weight of his godness. And where do we see the glory of God most plainly? In the face of his son, Jesus Christ. God took all of his inestimable glory as it spans across the universe and beyond as it exceeds our capacity to comprehend as it uh, is elevated above our highest thoughts and wildest imaginations as it blinds our mind's eye as we think of even glancing at the back of it and he took all of that and caused the fullness of it to dwell in his son Jesus Christ Colossians says And he is the radiance, the emanation of the glory of God, the fullness of God made man for our sin and for our salvation. The glory of God is the person and work of Jesus Christ who reconciles us to God in his death on the cross. The glory of God is seen in Betelgeuse. It's seen in the galaxies and nebulae. It's seen in the eyeball of the fly. It's seen in the birth of a child. It's seen in the deer in the woods. And it is seen most perfectly in the love that He has for us as His children through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the glory of God. What's the glory of God? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God saves wretched sinners, undeserving men and women like you and me, to himself through his son. Well, this immense glory of God, the weightiness of God, it's beyond our ability to grasp it all. We can picture slivers of it. We can talk about it in, in settings like this and around the table. And we'll never capture it all. I like to think of it like a child trying to comprehend Mount Everest. You can tell them facts about it, Kavod and Doxa. Mount Everest is however many, five miles, six miles tall. You could talk about the, the footprint of it and the tonnage of snow that rests on its peaks. And perhaps a child could look at a picture of it or even go there and see people climbing up it. But if you were to take Mount Everest and put it on top of a child, it would crush them into oblivion. And that's the glory of God. That's the glory of God, and yet we're called to pursue it. We're called to rejoice in it and to glorify Him because of His weightiness. God tells us to pursue His glory, to be in awe and fear of it, to make its renown our life's work, or as we say here at Christ's Covenant Church, to extol His glory from this place to the ends of the earth. So why is it necessary to pursue God's glory rather than our own? Our question is, what is the chief motivational drive in your life? Why is it necessary for us to pursue God's glory rather than our own? Let's just keep in the back of our minds now who this God that we just described is. Well, the first reason that you and I are called to pursue His glory is because He won't share it with somebody else. Isaiah 42, verse 8, staying in Isaiah here, Isaiah 42, verse 8. What does God say? I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will not share his glory with another. When we pursue things for our own glory or the glory of things lesser than God, we are in effect robbing God of the glory that's due his name. Our call to worship this evening was from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness and the glory of His holiness. It's necessary for us to pursue God's glory because of how demanding He is to receive it all. And He deserves it all, doesn't He? The psalm says that He deserves all the glory and praise because of who he is and what he's done. And when we choose to rob God of his glory by taking it for ourselves, we're just like the Israelites in the book of Malachi. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. God is he essentially brings the Israelites into the courtroom here in this book, and he rebukes them because of their practices. And in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he says this, "'A son honors his father, and a servant his master.'" Right? That's the way things should be. "'If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear?' says the Lord of hosts. "'To you, O priest who despise my name.'" But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now hold on to that for a second and look over at chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, God says. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. What's the point of all this in uh, Malachi? The point is simply that when we live our lives with an eye to our own interests and not God's glory, we are taking from him what he alone deserves. The Israelites were offering sacrifices, and they said, it's good enough I know that God said he wants this and deserves this, but this is all I really feel like giving, robbing God of the worship he deserves. Oh, this is good enough. I know that he said that this is the tithe and offering that he requires and demands, but this is all I feel like giving. My motivation is to make it look like I'm doing the right thing, but I really want to protect my larder. I really want to make sure that I have my meat and my grain and my vegetables put up for myself. I want my money in my bank account. I don't want to give it to God, and they're robbing God. Brothers and sisters, when we live our lives with an aim to purposes other than the glory of God, we are robbing him of the glory that he deserves. We glorify God because he deserves it. And when we don't, we take from him what he alone deserves. It's a violation of the first commandment, in other words, not to mention the eighth it is necessary to pursue God's glory above all else because of who He is and what He's done. Proverbs 16, chapter, verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. All things have been made for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God. As Sonny read in Romans chapter 9 earlier this evening, all men will glorify God in eternity one way or another. Even Pharaoh was raised up for this purpose, that God might show his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 tells us that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God will receive glory one way or another. It's our chief end to glorify God. It's the very simplest answer to our confessional standards. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's what we've been made for. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to reflect His image as image bearers, to produce offspring who would also reflect his image, to take the image of God and expand it across the entire globe until the whole of the earth was filled with people living lives commensurate with the glory of God, reflecting to one another and back to God, his own glory. Everything they did and saw and understood and thought was in light of the glory of God until they sinned and they chose themselves and they pursued lesser things. They robbed God of their glory, but don't miss this. They robbed themselves of His glory because His image in them became tainted, tarnished by sin. No longer did they see each other as reflections of God's goodness and glory. Rather, they saw each other as a threat to themselves and their nakedness. And so when we rob God of His glory, we rob ourselves of the ability to glory in Him. It's necessary to pursue God's glory. In fact, it's the end of our purpose in life. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. Well, let's begin in verse 1. John says, After... This I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's the end of our created purpose to glorify God in heaven forever. Perhaps it's just me. But Legos, especially the Legos that you buy in a kit, should only be used to build that kit. Thank you. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean. I can buy a bucket of about 100,000 Legos for a dollar for children who would like to build random things made out of Legos. Or you can buy a box with like 600 Legos that make some Star Wars character for like $100. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Parents, you understand this. Some of you understand this is, a, this is part of discernment and wisdom and stewardship and so forth. How do you wrestle with this question the more children you have that like Legos? But there's, there's something that happens in certain homes that those $100 boxes of Legos, which are designed to make one particular character, are built once, destroyed, and then put in the mixed box. That's not their purpose. Right, that's not their design. They're not. That's not their desired outcome. Right, it's the same reason that I think that raisins are an anathema. <laughs> raisins are the eschatological end of wine, which is the glorified purpose of grapes. Right, the same can be said of Legos. I often wonder if my strange frustration with Legos is a reflection. ...of the image of God in me, desiring for us to live live, lives according to the purpose for which he has made us. I would simply say at this point that our lives ought to be a right now reflection of this not yet reality. That we will spend eternity at the table of God with his son Jesus Christ, glorifying him forever. So are we pursuing God's glory now in this life? In your life, in your home, in your worship? Do you exalt above all else the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... Do you live as though these things are from and through and to Jesus Christ for his glory? Well, how do we do this? In closing, let's ask a couple questions about how we glorify God in all of life. Of course, we do not make God glorious. God can glorify us. He tells us in Romans 8 that he calls us and justifies us and glorifies us. But we cannot glorify God in the sense that we add anything to him. We don't add weight to God's already weightiness. What we mean when we say we glorify God is that we declare or make known his glory in our actions, in our thoughts, in our affections, and in our will. I want to summarize these with three things in closing. We, say, we might say that we glorify God in our hearts, on our lips, and with our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, which we already read, it tells us that we have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your lives. The question is, are our hearts drawn to the weight of God's glory as we live lives of wonder in a world that He has made? One of the ways that we can glorify God in our hearts is by living lives of wonder, of awe-filled wonder about the work of God in creation and the work of God in salvation. What sort of time do we spend contemplating the fact that those autumn colors that we see out there uh, that Marshall so aptly described as it's like driving through a bowl of fruit loops, he said this morning? <laughs> How do we think about those in light of God as the creator and maker of all these things? Do we live lives of wonder and awe and praise? Do we think about God and the work he's done for us in salvation? And the wonder of it all, in wonder do we glorify God. What about in worship? In our hearts, is our delight in the Lord of the day, and therefore is our delight in the day of the Lord? Where is your heart when you come to worship? Where is your heart when you drive through the back roads in autumn? Is it oriented towards glorifying God, holding Him in highest esteem above all other distractions because of who He is and what He's done? Or are you distracted? Are you distracted when you come here? Distracted by life's cares? Now, I don't mean to imply that life's cares are insignificant. But the idea of weightiness ought to have an impact on the way we think about life's cares, shouldn't it? I'll come back to that in a minute. We glorify God on our lips. We glorify God on our lips. Principally, we do this through heartfelt prayer, and I would suggest in family worship. Heidelberg Catechism question 116 asks the question, why is prayer necessary for Christians? The answer is because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires. In other words, prayer is one of the ways that we live in humble, grateful dependence on God. The next question in the catechism says that tells us that prayer must come from our hearts to God. In other words, we glorify God by being a praying people by acknowledging the fact that we're in desperate need of Him to keep us alive, to fill us with His Holy Spirit, to cause us to walk in His statutes, and to increase our knowledge for and love of Christ Jesus. We pray because we're thankful that God has invited us to come to His throne with boldness to receive mercy and grace. Throughout the Old Testament, there are passages such as Deuteronomy 6, which command us to tell the next generation of the glory and wonder of God. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare all your mighty acts. Psalm 71 verse 18 says, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to those to come. In family worship, we gather around table together as covenant families, those with whom God has entered into a relationship with. And we declare the glory of God to our children and to ourselves, to our wives and our husbands as we worship and celebrate and revel in the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we can increase in our ability to glorify God is by faithful, the faithful practice of worship in the home as we seek to come to know God more as he's revealed himself in his word and declare to one another who he is, and what he's done for us. Don't miss the fact that a mere month from now, Thanksgiving is on the horizon. What a wonderful opportunity if your family has been struggling to practice family worship faithfully, to begin anew, to take a time, a day on the calendar, irrespective of the secular background or what, it doesn't matter. Take a day on a calendar that's oriented around giving thanks and choose to give thanks to God for all that he's done for you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 gives us our last idea that we glorify God in our lives. Jesus tells us to do the good works that we've been given to do that others might see them and give glory to our Father in heaven. I'll mention this evening when we get to our Reformation dinner here in a few moments the fact that one of the things that the Reformation captured or recaptured for the Christian church is the sense of calling the calling of every Christian to a vocation that God has given you? Do we live our lives in vocation faithfully, honoring God in the work that we do and in recreation as well? Some of you here have been called to be a fifth grader or an eighth grader or a twelfth grader. Some of you have been called to be a single woman or a widowed man. Do you do these things in light of God's glory? living in those vocations, those callings to the glory of God alone, that he might receive the praise that he deserves in your life. Now, none of this discounts the fact that sometimes life is difficult. Sometimes being a fifth grader is hard, and being a widow is hard. Being single is hard, and having straying grandchildren and children is hard. And I don't deny any of those things. Cancer diagnoses are hard. Loss of a loved one in the miscarriage is hard. Being married to an unbelieving spouse is hard. Watching your loved one undergo surgery is hard. Not knowing what tomorrow might bring because your bank account is running dry is hard. And each of those things has weight in your life. But I want you to picture with me for a moment if we were to take a a sheet, like like a bed sheet, a very large sheet, and string it all across this room as tight as we could from wall to wall. Ten feet high, no light breaking through. It's a black sheet that covers this entire room as tight as you can pull it. And on that sheet, you start to drop marbles. Marbles of various sizes, some big ones, the shooter marbles, you know, the bigger ones, some smaller marbles, some metal ones, some glass ones, and they have different weight, and they begin to settle around this room. And those marbles represent your motivational desires or drives, your passions, your interests, the trials in your life, the things that you fear, your anxieties, what motivates you, what moves you, what compels you in life. And then you take little tiny ball bearings, those little itty bitty ball bearings that you can barely see, that you're afraid to hold because you know they're going to fall through the cracks of your finger, and you begin to toss those out onto the top of the sheet. What's going to happen to them? They're going to start to drift towards those marbles. More of them will drift towards the bigger marbles. Depending on how hard you throw them, some of them will be way over there and they'll be stuck by small marbles over by the piano. Others will be over here by this tree and they'll be settling over here. Now, don't miss the fact that what happens in this illustration is that the more of your life's ball bearings that intersect with those marbles, the weightier that area becomes. You see, the more credence you give to this trial as the supreme authority in your life, the more weight it starts to carry in the rest of your life the more significance that you give that desire over there, or that passion in your life, the more weight it starts to carry as more and more ball bearings settle around it. And all of a sudden, your life is broken up into these little pockets of motivational drives. And more and more of your life's emotions and affections and interests and desires drift towards these marbles. And then God comes along. And God is a 50-pound bowling ball. And you roll him onto this tarp, and what happens? It falls all the way down to the floor in the center because it weighs 50 pounds. And what happens to all of those cares, all of those trials, all of those motivational desires, all of those interests and affections and pursuits and so forth? They get sucked into God. They can't stay up here on the periphery because the tarp or the sheet is pulled all the way down to the center of the room right underneath that light, that light. And all of these things fall down to the middle. Everything about your life is gripped by the gravity of the weight of that bowling ball. That's what it means to live a life that glorifies God. That He weighs so much to you. That His reputation his commands, more, more significantly, His love for you in Christ Jesus, His Son, carries so much weight in your life that every other facet of your life, your difficulties, your trials, your personal desires and interests, your affection, your will, your thoughts, the use of your body, your money, your time, your energy, all of those things get sucked into the gravitational pull of that 50-pound bowling ball, which is God. And suddenly, what happens? He becomes more weighty in your mind because of the impact that he has in all of your life. Soli Deo Gloria. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is living. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a weighty God, full of glory and splendor and awesomeness and holiness. Lord, would you cause us by your Holy Spirit, cause us to give you the glory that's due your name, to think well of you as we live lives desiring to glorify you from this place to the ends of the earth. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.